Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenas tardes. Hello and welcome to the 75th Hunger Games. Sorry, that's the 75th trademark podcast. I mean, excuse the poor attempt at humour. I just warned everyone not to be humorous and to strike a serious tone. I couldn't help myself. Um, but it does feel increasingly dystopian at the moment, not least for the people of Ukraine, of course, all of its parts. Um, the invasion of Ukraine um, has already killed and maimed hundreds of people, innocent people. It's displaced nearly a million on top of the million and a half displaced since the, the coup of 2014. It's forced people from their homes, from their communities. It's destroyed infrastructure, uh, and it and it brings us closer to to cataclysmic world war potentially. Yeah, I never thought I'd say those words um, a month ago. And it can't solve the problems that it pretends it wants to solve either. So uh, we're here to try uh, and see our way through the fog of war in our own little way. Um, and they say that the first casualty of of war is truth, and we're seeing some serious, widespread, and very deep propaganda. We can't see the Russian propaganda because it's been taken off our airs. And that's another thing we might talk about. And so um, we have a responsibility to ourselves, to our friends, comrades and families to, to offer, if we can, a concrete analysis of a, of a concrete situation, as what someone once said. After all, in the words of Rosa Lux as well, the most revolutionary thing that one can do is always to proclaim loudly what is happening. And that's what we're going to try and do t- tonight. Uh, and if we don't, um, what we'll be left with is, is the dominance of what Arthur Ponsonby called the falsehood in the time of war. All who doubt our propaganda are traitors, and it increasingly feels we're on that we're on that road at the moment. Uh, and that goes for all of media, really. I suppose mainstream media. To counter some of that, I'm joined by four very good friends of Trademark. Um, we've got our regular Stuart McGill, um, who does a podcast with us on what the fuck is a stock market. Uh, Stuart's going to offer us some sound uh, economic analysis, uh, amongst other points of view, of course. We've got Professor John Barry, um, Professor of Green Political Economy at um, Queen's University in Belfast, who's um, just off, I think, another three weeks of uh, serious industrial action with the UCU. Fair play to you, John. More power to your elbow. Um, and don't scab everybody else who's listening. Not that I think any of our listeners would be scabs, but there's fucking plenty of them about, I have to say, which is quite surprising. Um, and Duran Fertil, a good friend of Trademarks, who's been on a couple of our podcasts before, uh, a political analyst based in Denmark, a man very knowledgeable about the inner workings of the of the behemoth, the Leviathan that is European Union, former political advisor well to Sinn Féin in the EU, so he knows his stuff about the EU, and I'm really pleased he can be with us tonight. There was another person who was going to come on, a comrade of mine from, from the from the east but she's she's unable to make it tonight i hopefully get her back on uh, the next podcast to talk about what the what the views of of, of leftists in eastern europe are about all this because it's a really important point of view that i know that duran you're closer to that than we are and hopefully you can tell us some of that because that's something that western leftists sometimes kind of ignore is the points of view of people living in some of those places i suppose the big question comrades is is, is why has russia done it um is Putin concerned about NATO expansionism? Although I know those two words appear to have become shibboleths, not that like the Scottish play of fucking geopolitics, NATO expansionism. Get hammered now if you say those two words. Or uh, are we also underestimating potentially Russian nationalism and indeed a form of kind of Russian exceptionalism? Are we not? Are we not reading that one right? But maybe that comes into into the discussion as well. P- Putin even criticised Lenin last week for for creating Ukraine uh, in 1917. And perhaps is it hubris? 
of the man as well. I mean, he's been too long in power with little accountability. Does that play a, does that play a role? I know that's a favourite stereotype of the West, but let's let's think about all of those things. So I want to come to you first, John, um, only because you're staring at me uh, intently. Um, so what do you think? What's the why? Why do you think Russia's done it? And again, give us two or three minutes of, of your of your analysis, Lance, and we'll move on to the next question. I well, well, to, to, to go along with, with the comment you made about the first casualty of war being truth, it is also and something you've put out yourself, I think, on social media that you know a war is a weapon with a working class person at either end, and that should always be our analysis in terms of the communities, the working class people, both in Russia and Ukraine, who are going to be affected by this. And the reality is that um, a term that I think will come up again and again in our discussion, and we have to loudly proclaim this, this is imperialism. Um, and this nonsense, whether it's from Keir Starmer or the Irish media or even sections of the, of the left saying that you can't make somehow an equivalence between NATO expansionism um, and, and, and what's happening in, uh, in the Ukraine now as a, as a reason. I just tweeted there about an hour ago, you know, it suddenly came to me. Uh, the USA almost threatened nuclear annihilation in 1962 when uh, the USSR, as was then, was going to place nuclear weapons 90 miles from, from Florida. So in, in many respects, and I might heard anyone make this comment, I mean, I, I may have missed it, but there is an, an equivalence that this is imperialism. Uh, I don't buy, and I think you're quite right to caution Stefan about the kind of, oh, Putin is a madman and, and so on. Um, that personalizes it. And to see there are deep geopolitical historical reasons for why we're here. You know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, and the collapse of the Warsaw Pact, why the fuck was NATO still in existence? You know, what was the rationale? Uh, and, you know, I think we have to take into account that Russia did, this does not, by the way, justify what Putin has done. And I think it's for the Ukrainian people to respond as, as they want to, to what Putin has done. But I do think we need to challenge, and it's difficult, I know, um, to, to make an equivalence between NATO and Russia's legitimate fears that, for me, the solution is a demilitarized, neutral uh, Ukraine uh, in terms of a, an, an, a landing zone or a, what's a, a, an off-ramp, I think is Stuart's phrase, where we're going to end up. I mean, wars may start on the battlefield, as it has now, just to finish on this, but they always end in diplomacy. And let's hope we get to that stage quicker rather than later. But I think we have to remember that this is an imperialist war. You know, we have to recognize that Joe Biden is desperate to look strong on the international stage because of the fuck up over Afghanistan. He has a domestic issue to deal with in the midterm elections. Putin similarly is not doing too well in, in Russia. And the last thing I would say, second last thing, <laughs> In terms of the, the other thing I said it was going to be last is my view is we should support the anti-war movement uh, within Russia, which is small. And we don't know exactly partly because RT and perhaps other uh, media outlets are, are difficult to get access to. But that's where I would go. In the words of, you know, uh, was it uh, um, Sheehy Skeffington, the Irish uh, pacifist and leftist in, this, in the First World War, where he basically said, damn your imperialist war votes for women now. And I would say, damn this imperialist war, green energy transition now. And we may get back to that as part of the energy story behind this. Yeah, thanks for that, John. Just on that, I got an email today from a mate about um, the, the manifesto of the Socialists Against the War Coalition, which is a kind of a, an attempt to bring people together in Russia, anti-war, the anti-war uh, left in Russia and the anti-war left across the East, uh, the, the, the East, of course. We can talk about that later on. I know Dura and you have more access to that and maybe more knowledge. Stuart, what about yourself? Again, what's what's Putin concerned about? Why has he done it? 
we can get on to later on about what we think the consequences of it and whether he's made a massive miscalculation. But why, what's the reasons for this happening? Why is why is he invaded Ukraine? Well, first of all, remember that we always kind of dehumanize and turn into nutters, the people uh, that are fighting us. Remember in the days of the conflict in the north of Ireland, the IRA were just a bunch of uh, aggressive yeah, Catholic nationalists that only wanted to go ahead and kill Protestants and kill servicemen. We always take away any rationality from those who are fighting us. If I'm Putin, I'm sitting there, I'm fighting the war in the Donbass region against a bunch of Ukrainian people, in, including the Azov Battalion, who are just straightforward nasties, uh, Nazis, and <laughs> nasty as well. And they are continually bombarding, as they have been for the last few days, uh, civilian areas in Donbass. If Ukraine were to become part of NATO, then those guys are going to become emboldened. They're going to push the war a little bit more. Russia retaliates, and at some point, Russia enters, maybe even by mistake, Ukraine proper, for want of a better term. Then, Russia is at war with a NATO state, and given the mutual defense pact that NATO has, then we have World War III. So there is a real cause for concern from that point of view there. Also, I mean, since, since, what was it, 1998, NATO expansionism was authorized by Congress. A guy called George Kennan, who was one of the architects of the anti-Soviet policy in the States, he said back then, this is a serious disaster. This will antagonize the Russians. And how did anybody ever think it was going to go well? Um, getting back to our troubles, imagine sometime in the 60s and 70s had the Irish Republic hooked up with the Warsaw Pact. How would the Brits and how would the Americans have taken that? I don't think there'd been much room for negotiation or diplomacy there. So go on, Stephen. Yeah. No, I just want, I want to get to that question in a minute. I'll come back to you straight away, Stuart, on that in terms of um, about the context and the history of of, sure. of of that of that NATO move into into the east and, and Russia's kind of fear of that. I suppose. Um, Daryl, and over to you then. Why has he done it? What's the excuses? What's the explanation for for this invasion? We can get on to later on about you know whether he's, as I said before, massively miscalculated. Yeah, in in, in ten words or less, explain uh, why we're going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, that's, cool. <laughs> that's why that's why that's why it's called a half hour podcast. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean the the justification that obviously everyone's heard of that the Putin's giving is denazification of of the Kiev regime um, post coup twenty fourteen. And it's true, you do have the Azov Battalion, or whatever they're calling them, Azov. There's actually a subsection of the National Guard now that were integrated some years ago, um, active in the east there, attacking the, the Donbass republics. But you've also got Russian fascists um, of the, the Wagner Group also playing on, on the other side, the, the Nazis and fascists. So it's, sort of, it's a bit of an equivalence at that level, if you dig down. But the, the justification is, is that underneath you have this geostrategic issue which goes back not just decades but centuries it's if we're returning to the great game it's imperialism 101 what we're seeing here and russia since the collapse of the soviet union has been on the defensive and is they, they did an internal report a few years ago there in russia actually beginning to prepare themselves at least at a military level for being a, a tier two superpower um, at least in their own heads i think they probably already are there and the continual expansion of nato has put them on the back foot why now though that's the, that's the real question mm. is, is 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 why now and i can't get away from the, um, the the election campaign in the US, where Biden was repeatedly hammering away at Russia is the, the enemy, Russia is the, the challenge ahead. And the, the US itself has, has also been pivoting away from the war on terror towards interstate competition. So again, back to classic style imperialist rivalries between nation states and 
Yeah, and Russia is the easy target here, as it has been for some decades, of sort of peeling away at the layers moving further east. And the EU is a, is a part of this project in its own way as well. And I think that's put Putin on the spot and on, on, on the back foot. He's got his own grander Rus- Great Russia ideas, yeah, Greater Slavic sort of empire or state or republic thing going on there. And these are just, we've, we've managed to hit a perfect storm where the, you know, the situation in the Donbass has deteriorated and both sides have been ready for it. There's a sort of an old um, older favourite of, of a uh, modern history exam question. You know, if everyone in, on all sides was against World War I, why did that break out? Well, because the objective conditions were there and they just got caught up in the, the logic of militarism and of political chest beating and, and, and not, not being willing to back down, not being willing to negotiate and to accept that there is a, a different way to I'm going to win. And, and we'll get to this when we discuss the European resolution and Germany later on. But this, this is actually very terrifying from a sitting here in the middle of Europe. I'm actually as close to Kiev as I am to Dublin <laughs> right now. And... Um, the language and the tone of the discussion is triumphalist. And one show of strength that goes wrong, one, you know, one plane that, that crosses the border accidentally and gets shut down, and we're in war right now. I mean, NATO hasn't got into to, um, Ukraine, but it may not need to for this to go wrong, because the logic of itself just builds until something snaps, unless we can find a way of, of de-escalating. Thanks for that, Daruan. Um, Yeah, I know we're not allowed to talk about, I'm glad you mentioned imperialism, I'm glad you you mentioned the great game, because the last week has taught us we're not allowed to talk about history, apparently, and we're not allowed to talk about context. But again, it's important to understand how we got here, if we're going to kind of understand how we might get out of it, how that, where that exit ramp is from this. And at the end of the Soviet Union, Stuart, I'll come to you briefly if I can. I mean, commitments were given to Russia, weren't they? Um, The new Russian Federation about NATO expansionism. And those commitments have been been broken consistently over the last 30 years. And that matters, doesn't it, in, in, in geopolitics? Uh, of course it's got to matter because it means that uh, Putin, with some justification, feels he can't trust NATO people. I think also when you look at what happened with the maiden coup in 2014, Joe Biden was intimately associated with what was happening at the time. Uh, Biden is also somebody who has been very focused for a few years on uh, liquefied natural gas sales to the States. So they're all so from the States to Europe and has never been particularly keen on the German relationship with Russia. So all these factors have played away at Putin. And of course, if people have continually lied to you, what, why would you trust them? Uh, so I, can, I don't like the guy, and I, I, I can understand why he's done what he did here. Also, from an economic point of view, I think people have to remember, Russia has a GDP a little bit smaller than Italy's. And all the great powers, all the great superpowers have achieved that power, the military hegemony, on the back of economic might. Russia doesn't have that. If America and China were fighting a localized war like this now, they wouldn't have anything like the economic problems. Also, when you ain't that big, people are more prepared to put sanctions on you because they can go ahead and shaft you. Also, is revenues. About 45 to 50% come from gas. All right, gas and oil. All right, so if that goes, he has a major problem in maintaining the state. So from his a logical point of view for Putin, if you integrate Ukraine, if you feel you're able to integrate Ukraine, and then maybe later on integrate Belarus into one grand Russian project, you have a bigger economy and you can defend yourself better against what you see as an aggressive NATO encroachment. Yeah, I read a quote last week, um, I can't remember who it's from, but it was something along the lines of, it's precisely the decline and contraction of Russian power, coupled with the possession of nuclear weapons, that's the problem here. Russia is not an economic power. It doesn't, in terms of the classic Marxist understanding of imperialism, Russia is an expansionist, capitalist, authoritarian state, absolutely. 
Um, but it's not an imperial state in the sense that it doesn't have economic domination over, over really anybody anymore. And, that, and that's actually a problem for world politics because it makes it makes them more vulnerable. It makes them more likely to react in the way they've reacted now. And, that, and that's a danger for us all. John, over to you in terms, in terms of that point, and we, we're gonna, we, we should hammer it home, that, that idea that there was an agreement at the end of the Soviet Union that, as you, you've already made the point, there was no point for NATO to exist, but it continued to exist. It continued to expand. And, and the commitments it made to not expanding into Eastern Europe have been, have been broken. And that, that, that matters, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, promises were made, you know, to Gorbachev in, in 91 um, with the collapse of the Warsaw Pact and, and so on that, you know, Russian security and, and uh, military non-interference uh, will be uh, guaranteed. Um, but of course, it's a bit like the Irish football team, you know, great on paper, crap on grass in terms of the uh, rank hypocrisy. Uh, and I do think we have to see this in the context of imperialism, which I'm, I'm so glad we're, we're talking about. People think imperialism is some, some sort of 19th century, you know, uh, trade following the gun kind of expansionism in the, uh, you know, the Far East and, and, and Africa and so on. This is modern imperialism. And the point Darwin made in terms of America, and I think it, it, it would have been interesting if Merkel had been in power while this happened, given that she was so supportive of the, of the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline, which basically bypassed Ukraine. People forget, but there was a major crisis. Uh, I forget now, it might have been 2010 or 2015, you know, I'm still uh, pick. My, I, I don't have baby brain. I've got picket brain in terms of uh, ten days in the freezing cold will do that to you. But a lot of the Gazprom, uh, particularly gas, was coming from uh, Russia through the Ukraine, and it was a major standoff. And there has been tensions about where that is then distributed onto to Germany and and in southern parts of of Europe. So I'm not saying it was the major issue behind this, but that energy politics is is part of what's going on here uh, as well. And the fact that America, uh, I mean, as Stuart said, in terms of Biden's particular interest in LNG, uh, you know, for, for Germany to try and, you know, bypass the Ukraine by having Nord Stream 2, which of course now they it's been built, it's not been uh, commissioned. And one, one thing that, you know, may come out of this is that, um, in my view, an unjust transition to renewable energy and that we begin to see, and we haven't seen it yet as much as perhaps we'll see in the weeks ahead, because we could be in for a long guerrilla warfare in uh, the Ukraine that may become another Afghanistan, Vietnam, take your failed imperialist um, project, that you know we will see arguments, oh, we need to get off Russian gas and oil, therefore we need to develop indigenous renewable energy sources or even, God forbid, um, you know, nuclear power um, as well. But at the moment, it is, just to finish, it, it, you know, I, I feel... A little bit reticent even on social media, never mind in public speaking now, about raising this issue of moving beyond this kind of binary opposition. We have this kind of zero-sum game that if we start talking about, uh, you know, American imperialism or EU-assisted NATO imperialism that were somehow pro-Putin supporters, I mean, to me, it's like tuberculosis over cancer. They're both fucking bad. You know, one may be less bad than the other, but we can certainly call both of them out. And I consistently go back to an anti-war peace, not, not necessarily pacifist, perhaps, but certainly supporting the peace movement now. And fair play to a lot of um, particularly Irish uh, peace movements, you know, Peace and Neutrality Alliance, uh, for example, and, and, and Amnesty here. And there's a particular story in Ireland is that the, the rank hypocrisy, of, of Ireland now with our, you know, amazing how these bleeding heart liberals, you know, turn very quickly to be armchair 
uh, generals in, in a context like this, that Ireland is now calling out, you know, we're, we're going to ban Russian planes from flying over Ireland, but we are quite happy to allow American, you know, military planes to, to land in Shannon Airport. Um, and and that and every time you mention that you're shut down, you know, as you said, Stefan, but somehow even to raise that complicity of a supposedly neutral country like Ireland uh, in this exposes the fact that, OK, Ireland may not be uh, providing the funds for the military um, armaments that the EU has now agreed to. But as somebody said, we're, we're, we're buying the petrol for the fucking planes they are going to drop the bombs. But what's the difference? You know, okay, we're not buying the bombs, we're buying the the fuel to arm arm the planes. And I think it's really brought to the fore, um, you know, the, the the hypocrisy behind particularly Irish, you know, stance on neutrality, but also these calls now for yes, let's absolutely accept you know Ukrainian refugees, give them shelter. But what about Yemeni? What about Syrian? What about Afghani uh, refugees that are equally the result uh, and the innocent victims of imperialist wars, and that somehow that because they're white and Christian in Europe, that somehow they are more favoured in terms of some sort of bizarre hierarchy of refugees. We should call out imperialism where we see it and give every person fleeing for an imperialist war sanctuary. That should be the, the consistent call of, of the left at this time. Thanks for that, John. Very important to raise that. Some of the, the, the white supremacy and the, the inbuilt racism of, of Europe has been revealed this week, hasn't it, on uh, on nearly every TV channel and by lots of mainstream reports. We might get to that later on. Before we move on, because we segued into the kind of the economic backstory here, because the West has, has declared economic war on, on Russia, if not military war. And that's really interesting because um, what it means and, and also the hypocrisy and also the double standards being applied there also about sanctions are good for some people, not good for others. But just, just before to do that, and, I, and very briefly on this, if you just want to talk about this, but I wanted to give like a minute each on this or at the most is we didn't, we, we got mentioned in passing the Maidan and the coup in 2014. Again, the lack of, of reference to that in any reporting about the situation in the Ukraine is, and, and about the Donbass and what's happened there, the separatist movement and the fact that 14,000 people have have died in, in eastern Ukraine in the last eight years. A million and a half people have been internally displaced or gone abroad. I mean, so there's been a war in Ukraine, not as big as this one, but there, is, there has been a war in Ukraine. And uh, Durawan, to you, what, what does the Maidan, is the Maidan important? And, and people forget, I mean, it was the replacement of a democratic elected leader by uh, a shit democratic elected leader, by the way, but we've got a lot of shit democratic elected leaders uh, everywhere. Replacement of him by by um by a stooge of the West is the Maidan important and should we understand it? And also, to what degree is it a far right regime or is it not? Or is it just another? Someone said to me, "Oh, they, Ukraine is like a little Russia in the sense of it's, it's owned by an extremely small capitalist class. That's who that's who owns and runs Ukraine." Give us your your thoughts on that, Duran. I didn't get my go on the historical background either, but um, uh, just a couple of points on that quickly, and then I'll touch on Maidan. Go on, yeah, go on. Yeah. First of all, it's clear. I think I think we're all agreeing here that no one's excusing Putin. Like the, the, the invasion is a fucking it's a it's a breach of international law. It's a war crime. It's whatever. You know, just in case anyone's listening and, and thinks that we're somehow Putin apologists for talking about history, but um, or even context and trying to understand why we're doing this. And then understanding is important. Um, one thing which I think is very important for understanding what's happening right now as well, but also one of the motivations is the um, the actual Russian military itself. We, they've inherited a massive fleet from the Soviet period, and they've also got a massive army, and they and they keep flip-flopping between which one they want to prioritize, and you can't keep both. And the question of the Crimea, which they had a, an agreement with the um, the Ukrainian government before the Maidan uprising for housing the the, the Russian fleet there, uh, it's geostrategically important for the Black Sea in terms of 
oil and gas passing out, which isn't Nord Stream, but you know, bypassing the whole of Europe and, and being different markets or not being dependent upon just the Baltic, it's it's key. And that's the motivator for, for the current offensive and, and invasion as well, is securing and controlling that. Where you, If you look at a map of where the Russian forces are right now, they're going to Kiev, they're in Donbass, and they're in the south. They're coming up from Crimea and they're around Mariupol, which is also a centre for these Nazis, the, the Azov Battalion. But it's, it's because of its positioning um, on the Black Sea, and it's related to the military um, aspect as well. But then they can't keep both of them, which is why the, the, the assault actually at the moment appears to be, I could be wrong, appears to be kind of floundering because the, the military has been scaled back to keep the Navy going. And that of this could drag it down into a, an entrenched long-term guerrilla war, or we could see a sort of a tail between the legs kind of find an agreement with the Donbass. But we'll touch on that in a, a bit later. The, the question still on history of the expansion of, of NATO, I mean, it's not often that I agree with a former uh, Labour Prime Minister of Australia who introduced neoliberalism there when he was a treasurer back in the 80s, but Paul Keating gave a speech in 97, criticising the eastward expansion of NATO, and literally said, you know, it's an error which may rank in the end with the strategic miscalculations that prevented Germany from taking its full place in the, in the international system at the beginning of the century. So the inter-imperialist rivalry that led to the to World War One and Germany being effectively suffocated and wanting to have its Lebensraum and all these kind of things, Russia's playing a, yeah, a similar kind of game and feels being su- is being suffocated by that. Doesn't justify invading anyone, but it's it's this dynamic, and this is a, a very mainstream neoliberal politician saying this 25 whatever years ago. You can't say that now. <laughs> you get accused of being a, a Putinist and, and what have well, you. Well, I mean, and here here Henry Kissinger, a well-known warmonger, said it in 2014. So I mean, it's, not, it's not just the left that's saying that there are strategic and historical reasons for all this happening. It's important that we understand that. Carry on, mate. Yeah, yeah, but in Maidan is it gets it gets it depends very much on, on your background, how you characterize it. I think a lot of the time, for some it's seen as a as a right wing coup, for others it's a revolution. It, it's it, it can be and probably is all of the above. <laughs> Uh, it was you had a, a, a corrupt regime beforehand, which was pretty close to um, to Russia, in terms of the the, the post-Soviet settlement. You know, Ukraine ended up being very much within within Moscow's kind of ambit. Um, there was a, there's been a move, particularly in the eastern parts of the country, looking towards Europe or the EU as a, as a way of modernising the economy as a basket case. So they're sort of hoping for. You know, the EU sort of handout um, mentality and process as a way of maybe fixing some of it. But in the eastern part of the country, it's uh, it's much more Russian. 30% almost of Ukrainians use Russian as a primary language. And that doesn't get touched on. It's like Ukraine and then Russia invades. It's like, yeah, actually, it's you know, it's a bit more complicated than that. And these regions in mining and, and you know, steel kind of regions, there was some migration in the past few centuries, but there's been people there from Russia for five, six hundred years as well. So there was this, the rising was against the Kiev government, uh, which backflipped on promises to become more closely aligned with, with Europe, did a deal with Moscow. And you had the far left and the left on the streets, you had Nazis on the streets, you had liberals on the streets on the, in, the, in the same square fighting against the, the, the government and, and, and government forces. But the left was too weak and it was the liberals and the right wing that eventually took the lead. And they, you know, they scrapped the neutrality that, that Ukraine had, and there, there was also in the heart of this an anti-Russian sentiment, which was played out in violence against the Russian minority in the east, primarily led by the Azov Battalion and another group called Right Sector, both both Nazi outfits who were committing war crimes, burning towns to the ground, massacring hundreds of people, and the, and the combination of the the violence and the, and the political changes, there was an anti-Maidan pro, you know, uprising from the east. And long story short. 
you know, Russia decided that it wanted in on this to help settle it, but also to protect their interests in Russian people there, and invaded. And the the Ukrainian Ukrainian army was actually quite weak at the time and collapsed very very rapidly. It's been updated a lot since then with NATO help on, on the sly. So you may have, if you read through the news articles, you'll actually find reference to NATO personnel moving from Kiev to Lviv and other places further closer to Europe um, or Central Europe. Um, but they've been there and they've been arming and and, and propping up the, the Kiev government. It's not a Nazi government. It's not even a far-right government. It's a very capitalist government with, with the sense of having oligarchs, corruption. All the rest of it, the current president is a former actor and comedian uh, who played being president uh, in a TV show. <laughs> um, and one dancing with the stars or whatever uh, at one point as well. And he, he, he famously voiced uh, Paddington Bear, you know, on the uh, in the U Ukrainian version. Um, he doesn't have a, a power base, really. He's just he was elected because he's not any one of the other ones. Um, but the, the actual structure of this neoliberal uh, Ukraine, which has been built, attacking unions, uh, banning communist parties. The communist Party of Ukraine has been banned, left-wing parties being banned, unions attacked, union offices burnt down. This is the nature, and, and the massive privatizations which have been carried out under this president as well as previous ones. This is the nature of the government. It's, it's a continuation and intensification of the privatization of the infrastructure and resources post-Soviet. It just happens to have some a Nazi battalion, which was then integrated after this uprising into the National Guard and legitimised and walks around with a Nazi um, sigil on its flag. Thanks for that, Duran. Really interesting. And thanks for that context. It's so important that we have that context and we have that understanding of what's what's happened in the past and what um, and, and, and what's happening now, really. I wanted to, you mentioned there about the mass privatisation that followed the end of the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact, and it's ongoing in, in Ukraine. Yeah, they keep talking about kleptocracy and oligarchs, but it's very similar to what's happening in lots of other parts of Western Europe, particularly Britain as well, which has the highest levels of privatisation uh, in the Western world. And that's what, that those are the driving forces beneath lots of this, of course, are the economic driving forces. But, and we're on that point of talking about the economy and money as well. And, um, and I said before that the EU and the West has declared economic war on Russia uh, with sanctions. Um, and it's, it's interesting, that, isn't it? Because London's been the most important place, not only for Russia's capitalist class to launder all its money, but also for the Ukrainian capitalist class to, to launder all its money as well. And the Tory party have long been kind of like the Kremlin's bankers uh, and, and Ukrainian bankers as well. I mean, the looting of Russia since 1990 and the looting of most of Western Europe, Eastern Europe could not exist without the city of London. It's been the key facilitator in that, which has had a massive impact, of course, on the working class, on the people of those regions, which is not spoken about. I think I read an article once that um, said that something like 10 million people had died in Eastern Europe immediately after the fall of the war from, from the, the collapse in the welfare systems and so on. Um, but there are sanctions being put in place. They seem to be quite selective. Looks like Roman Abramovich is about to dump Chelsea on the market for about three billion because he's afraid of you know losing his money. So he wants to cash his chips in and get the fuck out quite quickly. <laughs> um, so what, what's the economic impact of this going to be, Stuart? I'll come to you first. I'll, I'll talk about LNG next and the geopolitics, but what's, what, what could be the economic impact of the sanctions on Russia? Because I know they've attacked their, their central bank, which is real economic warfare. I've not really seen that before, although, although weirdly, the European Union has learned that lesson from what they did to Greece and Ireland <laughs> during austerity years. So they've just ramped it up a bit, and now they're going for the central bank of Russia. What might the impact be on the Russian economy, Stuart? And second part to that question, Will there be blowback into Western economies from that? Because the you know the, the the world economy is so integrated. It's over to you, Stuart. Give us your thoughts. Right, sure. No, it's relevant, but uh, so I'm going to have to go back a little bit here and talk about Maiden first, because Maiden is relevant to everything which happens. And to understand what happened, you need to know the detail. Basically, Putin and the ministers sought to persuade the European Union to make the agreement tripartite. So, but the EU came back and said, no, you choose between us 
and Russia. So basically the, the Ukrainians discovered how expensive the EU agreement was and that's when they pivoted to Russia which caused the major aggravation. So in the end the, the coup took place which was a right-wing led coup there's no doubt about it, it was an extremely right-wing uh, led coup certainly right-wing influence and the EU put that agreement in place which had lots of uh, provisions binding the new partner to NATO military and security policy so it wasn't just about the economics here and remember George Bush did propose to fast-track NATO membership for Ukraine in 2008 but uh, Germany and France vetoed it so uh, the whole thing to a certain extent does have an economic background but as Marx said we would of course go ahead and agree with that. In terms of where we are now with the sanctions it's difficult to know uh, there are some people that say Russia has made itself sanction proof I don't think it can have done that because you hope if they what they told people uh, traders to convert 80% of the foreign exchange into rubles so the run on the ruble has caused a real problem for people where they've increased interest rates to 20%. Uh, this is serious. I think there's a belief in Russia that the Chinese will bail them out because Putin and Xi do refer to themselves sometimes as the best of mates. I don't think they particularly trust each other 100% and they're both right. Regarding Russian money in the city, it's extremely important to the city of London. Right, they need to attract funds to the city so they can go ahead and do their various bits of chicanery and the Russian funds have been substantial. It's not like the states where everybody wants dollars goes to big reserve currency. They have to do things to attract money in uh, and their magnificent track record in money laundering does attract quite a few of those funds including Russia. So I don't think that they will take it seriously in the city. Do you remember 2014 whenever Maiden kicked off? Cameron was seen coming out of one of Cameron's aides and it actually said we must find a way of and on the papers he was carrying we must find a way of ensuring that the sanctions do not affect the city of London because hell the city of London gives the Tories 50% of the money the Russian oligarchs give them a hell of a lot of money as well so the sanctions will have an impact will they impact them quickly enough to go ahead and stop this conflict in a time frame that we'd like probably not right will the city of London play its full part in making those sanctions work no, probably not. And last thing on this issue, I see Elizabeth Warren put something up today. Russian oligarchs will have to pay for the cost of the war. What about, you know, American billionaires paying for the cost of their wars? Getting back to the John's hypocrisy thing beforehand. And the hypocrisy has been fucking huge. I was walking through town yesterday and I went past the post office tower. Sorry, the telecom tower is now known. All people like me will always call it the post office tower big yellow and blue colours there. So next time the Israelis bomb the shit out of Gaza, I assume they're going to have Palestinian colours on the post office tower and Nelson's columns there. Will they bollocks? I doubt anyway, that. I, 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 I think we all know the answer to that one. John, what about that? What about the economic? Um, uh, Stuart's given us an idea that he doesn't think the yeah. economic well, sanctions uh, will, will impact uh, quickly enough to I, end I, the war, but what might be the result of these sanctions? I, I, I think anyone listening to us now should watch how quickly the Western media start blaming the, uh, the hike in energy and the cost of living on Russia, even though it all predates it, uh, you know, uh, you know, very clearly. Yes, that's well, happening well, already quite clearly. I've, I've seen that already. You know, but it's a, a wonderful, you know, never mind Johnson. He's just loving it. He's wetting himself where we're going to wherever it was, Estonia and Poland and playing the pound shop fucking Churchill uh, that he is. And as a distraction from Partygate, he wants to, he's got a, a vested interest in, in having war, uh, you know, developing, you know, in this way. But economically, it's really interesting that right wing 
politicians are now preparing um, Western publics to take the pain, the economic pain for preserving uh, democracy um, and so on. You know, never mind fucking Liz Truss, who is way out of our depth in terms of being um, foreign secretary, you know, and supporting people wanting to go and fight um, um, in, in Ukraine. I, I, I am beginning to see that the attack on the, the central bank in, in Russia, that is economic warfare. That is very, very significant because it's going to start impacting on ordinary Russian people who they've not no fucking interest in this whatsoever. What, what have they got to gain out of this? We're back to that simple analogy that it's working people who are going to suffer. Uh, either in Russia or Ukraine or in in, in Germany or um, other places. And I think that, you know, the real issue to look out for now is the strength of the anti-war movement. I think we've been a bit um, maybe shocked by this. I have to say I was wrong on, uh, you know, Trump being elected. I was wrong on Brexit and I was absolutely fucking wrong on uh, Putin invading Ukraine. I did not think he would do this. But I do think there is something I think around. We all got that one wrong, John. You know, I, I really, honestly, and that's what maybe we could, we could discuss. I mean, I honestly thought, yes, absolutely, geopolitics, flex your muscles, but to invade, I, I just think it's a strategic uh, mistake myself. In terms of this, looks like it's going to be a long, drawn out, horrible, death-inducing, um, you know, uh, uh, guerrilla warfare that will will not end unless. Putin pulls back and he accepts that he takes the East and Odessa and secures that. And there's some sort of agreement being, you know, dealt with. But economically, people are already dying in the city I live in, in Belfast, because of energy prices. Energy prices have already increased by 30%. You know, Stuart would know probably better than I, but last time I looked, you know, uh, gas and, and oil prices are north of $110 you know, which is unprecedented. This, these are the levels that precipitated the global financial crash of 2007 and 2008. There's going to be significant impact on Western publics, not least just to finish, even within Ireland, you know, where you and I both live, Stefan, calls for more investment in the army. We're beginning to see this kind of rhetoric now. We have to arm ourselves. And to me, colleagues, you know, it all has the whiff of the 1930s about it. You know, this binary opposition, this kind of drumbeat of, of war, the, the whataboutery that you're either with us or against us, and any nuanced analysis. And again, every one of us here tonight are, you know, we're not pro-Putin. We can be anti-NATO and anti-Putin. There's no inconsistency, yet we're not allowed a space. Beyond, of course, in this uh, the space created by trademark uh, Belfast podcast and so on. And I'm really fearful. Which, which of, by the way, is a significant space. Carry on. It is. It, it has north north of, a, a, I hear, a thousand listeners <laughs> in, you know, it's, it's the 21st most popular podcast in Denmark, I think, uh, you know. <laughs> it was the 226th most popular podcast in Denmark, actually. But anyway, carry but, on. But, but, but I do think that there is an issue here for those of us on the left to actually start being more um, clever and creative and getting our narrative out there because, you know, even people I know who are, you know, maybe social democratic, some of them on the left, although most people on the left have a fairly consistent anti-imperialist view. They see what NATO and the EU is doing. But it's almost like the, the, the ways in which ordinary working class people went to the anti-vax 
fucking right-wing populist narrative, they are now rallying behind this kind of, you know, uh, Ukraine is an innocent, you know, attacked nation. And, you know, I can see the logic of that. But whenever I say, for example, that if you read the Panama Papers, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the president of Ukraine uh, was involved in the same oligarchic offshoring of wealth as the very oligarchs and the verticomas that he was there to, you know, um, you know, challenge and replace. You, we have to really be strong. And that's why it's so great about these spaces of at least us all sharing our pain and the struggle of trying to get the, you know, it's our narrative. I, I, I think it's the truth in terms of an analysis based upon the facts on the ground informed by the history. Let's talk about history. I was even listening today just to finish a usually fairly good popular uh, program on BBC Ulster here called Talk Back. It's kind of a, you know, a lunchtime analysis, of the big issues and how consistently the um, the host was shutting down any of us here that would say, listen, there is an equivalence. There is a history. we got to understand the deep political economic analysis here. It's almost like quickly, unless you are for us, you're against us. And that I think I, I'm really worried about how working class people Unless they're given an analysis like we're offering tonight, I'm not saying what we're saying here is the truth, you know, but at least for us to have our space that we can uh, put it in front of people and say, well, what do you think of it? We are being denied. We are being cancelled even before we can make our point. Yeah, I want to get onto that again. We, we, I've got a question at the end that I wanted to raise with you all about, about propaganda and stuff. But before we get into that, <clears throat> I, I just wanted to, to pivot slightly away um, stay on the geopolitical thing, but ask the question about China, because China's sitting quietly in the background of all this, isn't it? And obviously, if, if we cut off Russian gas and we, we exclude Russia, we isolate Russia economically um, and, and culturally and, all, and, and politically, which is, which is happening around us at a breakneck speed, incredible speed they've reacted to, considering they've done nothing for, against uh, US imperialism for fucking decades. But um, will, it, will it make Russia more dependent on China? Will we... Will we um, you know, will they use US and EU sanctions as an opportunity to pick up? Will China use the sanctions as a, as a chance to pick up excess Russian oil and gas? And and will it create that kind of? Are we moving to a bipolar world? And who does that benefit? And does that not benefit? I don't know. Does that benefit China? I don't know. I read a really good article you sent me, Stuart, by Rana Farur in the FT in a weekly column, and she was talking about the renminbi being a new reserve currency and being set up against the dollar and stuff like that. So you're seeing this bipolar world emerge. I initially thought. The champagne glasses were sort of twinkling or tinking against each other in the United States. I think it might be happening in Beijing. Durawan, you want to come in there, mate? Yeah, just a Bri quick, briefly uh, on this one now because we're on that. Very time, quick on that because that's actually it's an important one. I've, one I've been thinking about for the past day or so, and had a big uh, chat with my dad about today. <laughs> big round. Um, the thing I said earlier about Russia being sort of being squeezed, being squeezed in from two sides, yeah, <laughs> and the other side is is the influence of, of of China and the question of Central Asia, where Russia's had a traditional sort of. Uh, you know, area to work in, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and, and and friends, and they still have that. And you saw that with the the military intervention there in, in Kazakhstan the other week. But China's influence there is is growing, and China's influence is growing elsewhere. So the competition in Africa and Latin America, um, Russia's trying to get in on some of that, but they're being outpaced. And I found really interesting on this front, China's offer to potentially be a broker for negotiations on the Ukraine conflict. Because if that happens, in my opinion, that's potentially the biggest geopolitical shift since the collapse of the Soviet Union. That's China becoming a major player of peace in Europe, but and basically playing, as you say, a bipolar world in, in effect, whatever Berlin or, or, or Paris may, may otherwise believe. 
and maybe it'll be a while before that fully plays out and there'll be frictions. But if they can get a foothold like that and be seen to be a you know an influencer, you know, Russia is is, yeah. is, a, is an old you know old hat second second rate superpower. China's gradually coming up and they see an opportunity to to get in and they'll just move in there in the most reasonable way possible. Everyone yeah. needs them there. And yeah, it, it, and that, that influence stays. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. I've been thinking that myself all week about China playing a very clever game in all this. But the problem with Russia becoming a second rate superpower is a sec- and it is a second rate superpower in terms of its economic, as as, as Stuart rightly pointed out, with the GDP the same or smaller than Italy, but it has six thousand nuclear warheads. That's that is the that is the very big fucking difference here, isn't it? Quickly yeah. Doran. Yeah, just just one thing on that. This is a question of resources. In some respects, this is not not so different for China's perspective as as Africa or elsewhere. The food from the breadbasket of, of the Ukraine and that part and that part of Russia. China is busy making sure that they've got supplies of raw materials and food and everything else backed up. And re- and if they can make an ally in the in the area and make sure that that food mm. is secured, if not for themselves, then also for those parts of North Africa and the Middle East who depend upon that as well. I mean the the Arab Spring was in, in large part also influenced by uh, by fires and droughts and across price, this and area. And, and the food price went up, mm. bread prices went up because the wheat from Ukraine and Russia just wasn't there anymore. And Stuart, this is all connected. Yeah, absolutely it is, mate. Stuart, do you want to come in very briefly on that now? I'll give you a couple of minutes. Uh, don't forget that Russia has got a huge mineral wealth, which will be important for any transition to the new economy, nickel, etc. So Russia remains an economically important country from an extraction point of view, despite its relative small size. Uh, the Chinese also have extensive interest in Ukraine, and of course anybody should be interested in Ukraine, which is a massive producer of grain. So the Chinese will be a bit wary about endangering their interests there. The one thing you can guarantee or they will look after their own interests and Putin knows that. So the relationship between them will be mutually suspicious. Uh, in terms of the economic fallout of all this for all of us, it's very difficult to predict anything these days. But uh, I think we can probably say that the price of gas will go up. An important thing to remember about that is the gas companies, the big six companies here in the UK have paid 82% of profit out as dividends over the last five years. And I think a similar amount over the last 10 years. These companies can afford to take the hit. We should not have this assumption that because their costs go up, the rest of us have to suffer. But at the moment, companies like this are making huge margins. So we need a government which will step in and say, you take the hit and let people right, and other industries as well, go ahead and carry on keeping the same costs. Otherwise we're all gonna end up in shit street. Uh, what happens to Russia economically will be incredibly important to what happens in the next couple of weeks. If the people suffer, they'll think, hell, we have no choice. They'll go out in the streets. The oligarchs will start to ask, do we really need this guy Putin in charge? Uh, and hopefully, the phrase we talked about before, we can get on the exit ramp to some kind of peace here. I think that exit ramp will have to include a commitment to uh, a neutral Ukraine. Yeah. A, a, a complication, and this is still an economic matter, will be the power of the LNG lobby in the United yeah. States. And Biden is part of that lobby. There's a guy called Amos Hochstein. Sorry, Stefan, very quickly. Hochstein, he is the security advisor to the energy department. He used to work for the Ukrainian equivalent of Gazprom, and he's worked for various LNG companies in the States as well. And he has been very big at pushing LNG exports from the States to Europe for financial reasons and also as an instrument of American foreign policy. So I'll never forget that important aspect there. No, that's crucial. And thanks for that, because that leads me straight on to the next question. I mean, I remember I put up a tweet last week about the, LN, the, the, the fracked gas in America, that the industry collapsed about 18 months ago. 
And then suddenly with uh, war in the Ukraine and Russian invasion, they're like, thanks very fucking much, lads. We're back in the game again. Um, and last night there was a resolution went through the European Parliament that rightly co condemned the invasion and called rightly for humanitarian support for Ukraine and for Ukrainian refugees. Um, but the resolution also called for kind of accelerating the provision of military equipment, weapons, and most worryingly for, for those of us who are not friends of um, NATO, to strengthen NATO's presence, uh, particularly on the front lines of Eastern Europe, increased defence spending. Germany passed, you'll know this, around about 100 billion or something in, in a defence budget, double its normal annual defence budget. But also, um, and opportunistically, called for throwing open European energy market to fract liquefied natural gas, or LNG, from the United States. John, what does that tell us about what's going on here? We've got increasing militarism, we've got increasing propaganda, but we've also got this clever little economic story going on in the background, which is saving a really dirty industry. Uh, but, but, but to me, it's very similar to, you know, we invaded, an, well, we, as in uh, the West, invaded and occupied Iraq uh, for the same reasons, you know, uh, an addiction to, to fossil fuels. Um, and here we have a same kind of story that a, a world that's dependent upon the three Cs, the three evils of our modern age, comrades, capitalism, carbon and consumerism, you know, are again bringing us to the brink of, of, of war. And there is an energy story, which of course is sublated. It's not really prominent now in the, in, in the narrative that we're, we're now seeing. And as I said, you know, I'd be against an unjust, you know, capitalist transition to renewable energy. But, the, you know, the reality is that, you know, being dependent upon your more, you know, um, indigenous energy sources, it makes for a more geopolitically stable world. I mean, I, I I can imagine in some kind of bizarre world, you know, wars over wind energy or wind turbines. Um, but I can't really imagine, you know, I can already, already see we're having wars over carbon energy. And it does raise the issue that, you know, what type of world do we want? I mean, for me, um, while horrible what we're facing, there is a, um, and obviously I've come straight from the picket lines of fucking 10 days of the most privileged in some ways, you know, workers, university workers being so angry, uh, students supporting us in a way I've never seen before, that there is, a, you know, a rise of, you know, I'll be honest with you, I'm not going to be halcyon and romantic about this. We are now having to refight and relearn battles mm -hmm. and strategies that we thought we had won. The, the working class has been defeated by neoliberalism. Um, what we're now seeing is an imperialist project uh, being, you know, played out in, in the Ukraine, which is partly as a result of the lack of a strong labor opposition. I mean, I'm fucking, you know, so angry at not only Keir Starmer. I mean, he is spending more time, you know, slapping down labor MPs in Britain, signing stop the war petitions or speaking on platforms when that should be the fucking default position of any anti-imperialist. Is your anti-war, and that's why I would I would call out just to finish, just a very very local, on the seventeenth of March, St Patrick's Day, great day uh, on this island where we live, Stefan. There will be um, a protest against Thales uh, in the biggest bomb factory in in Belfast. We are making weapons here in Northern Ireland that are now going to, uh, to, to you know to provide you know, cover for uh, this imperialist war. And it's making those connections. And it's very complicated because people have jobs in the munitions industry and, and so on. But it's really beginning to, to see that 
now we're at a time as we come out of COVID, which is bad enough, you know, which we really reveal a lot of, you know, supply chain, supply chain issues. Uh, globalization is a complete fucking disaster when it comes to energy and food, but particularly when it comes to issues like this. And it hasn't really come to the fore yet that the energy story behind what we're seeing played out in the Ukraine, that we should present a left alternative, that we don't just want green energy. We want the democratization of the energy means of production. I mean, we can't say that consistently enough. That's not just about moving from a fucking corporate-owned carbon-based energy system, which is fucking up the planet. And we all know that. And that's the thing I just want to mention. On Monday, we had the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the world's premier scientific body looking at climate change. We are fucked if we keep continuing going down this carbon-based energy system. But of course, the whole issue in Ukraine blew that off the, the, the media cycle. But we on the left, should be consistently saying there's a connection between what's going on in Ukraine. It's it, you know it's not a major issue. There's deep issues of politics and so on, as you know Stuart and 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 well, uh, you know have been mentioning. But actually, there's an opportunity now for us to say consistently and proudly, we are for the democratization of the energy means of production. We are for the democratization of indigenously produced energy sources that will reduce geopolitical tensions exacerbated. I don't think we can say energy politics has caused a crisis in the Ukraine, but it certainly exacerbated it. It has and what, I'm, going to, I'm going to read that sentence out for you, John, the last sentence of the new IPCC report, which did disappear this week for obvious reasons, but it's even more frightening. And the scientific evidence is unequivocal. Climate change is a threat to human well-being and the health of the planet. Any further delay in concerted global action will miss a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable future for the species. I mean, that's a um, you know, it scares the shit out of me when I read that. Look, but we're not. We can talk. We will come back and talk about climate breakdown. But as you said, these things are linked. They're integrated. You can't accuse this of being a gas war and an oil war, but it does play a massive role in what's going on in terms of geopolitics. Duran, what about the EU resolution? It was controversial last night. Mick Wallace and Claire Daly got hammered for it because they didn't vote for it. I know that. I think the Spanish communists abstained. A number of other left bloc kind of or the, the kind of abstained from. I suppose to protect themselves probably from mass criticism or mass attack. But what was your take on the resolution briefly? Because then I've got a couple more questions and then we're done. Yeah, I mean the the, the thing's been presented uh, publicly as it was condemnation of Russia's aggression against uh, invasion of uh, of Ukraine, but it was, it's a lot more than that. Um, from about paragraphs twenty through to thirty in in that section in particular, there's line after line praising NATO, NATO's role, calling for more NATO, more NATO troops um, on the eastern fringes of NATO up and down the border, um, encouraging Finland and Sweden to potentially join NATO, which is why actually the, the, the Swedish left um, party, which is normally a little bit more uh, in the middle of the road when it comes to some of these things, um, voted against because they didn't want to be told to be joining NATO. Um, it was an absolute shocking piece of work in that respect. The left uh, group in Parliament got some good bits in it about uh, negotiations and keeping keeping channels open, which notably wasn't in there before. There was there was no content saying, "Hey, let's talk and not have a, a, a global war." Until the left came along and said, "Yeah, you know what? Maybe we don't want to all die." Um, but the thing was, was I mean, I, I wouldn't have voted for it if I'd had the misfortune of being in the European Parliament. But six hundred and twenty thirty odd um, did, and. 10 voted against, or no, and 7 or 10 voted, 13 voted against, 13, I think, and uh, 26 abstained. And of those uh, that voted against was um, 
I think, yeah, Mick and, and Claire. Uh, Sinn Féin's MEP voted in favour, despite all of this. And I think that's there's a tradition in the par- parliament there of you vote if something is really big and important, you vote for it or abstain on it if it's really, really bad. And then give a, an explanation of vote saying, I did this because it's really important to send a message to Russia, but I disagree with X, Y, and Z, NATO, whatever. And so you can't always you know, tell a, a party's position from how they vote on it, on a thing like this. But it was effectively a call to war. If you watch the negotiation, the, the, negoci- the negotiations. If you watch the debate around it um, beforehand with the MEPs, but also with von der Leyen and Joseph Borrell, who's the High Commissioner on Foreign Affairs for the EU, there was a talk of we will prevail, and you know, this, this money which is being spent on weapons, by the way, is not coming through the European Parliament. The, it's going through the European Peace Fund, which is run by the, the governments and the defence ministers of each of the member states. But there was an appeal, like we pointed out, this is not your money, but next budget, you better vote for an EU army because we need this. We need to be a geostrategic Europe and pivoting towards being a hard force uh, on on a world stage. And this was the mechanism to justify that. And around this resolution, the pressure on... Uh, parties of the left, uh, green parties as well, those that still have a backbone, has been immense. And looking uh, like here in Denmark, the Red Green Alliance, which is nominally a left party, uh, voted to send Danish weapons as well as for this. The the left party in, in, in Sweden voted against because they're being told to join NATO. But there's a handful, only a very small handful of, of parties actually stuck to an anti-war position. You don't yeah, send they, weapons. It, it, it's quite and you, don't, you don't beat your chest against a nuclear armed superpower. It's shocking. Like I'm actually, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm, I'm actually scared that this is going to get out of hand. Yeah, it's it's mental. We're going to get onto that one in a minute. I mean, the very fact that Keir Starmer said he might support a no-fly zone in Ukraine. I mean, you know, even Boris Johnson's not that fucking stupid and that ruled it out immediately because you know that a no-fly zone, no-fly zone leads to global fucking cataclysm. But the point about the EU is that they snuck through more last night than they've managed to do in the last ten or fifteen years in regards to increasing European militarism, European federalism. And, 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 and making that Leviathan is the EU, that anti-fucking democratic monstrosity stronger than ever. If anything, that's why Putin's miscalcul- miscalculated badly, because Russia will become, become weaker out of this, and the European Union as an imperial bloc will become far more powerful. So a huge miscalculation, I think, on his part. Um, I want to go on, Laz, to that point of, of, of the propaganda of this, because it really is important, because it's about, this is about closing down public debate. And that's quite scary for all of us. No, no, and that's that's something we have to talk about. And the attack on the anti-war movement you mentioned, John. I mean, amidst all the jingoism and flag waving and um, and hysteria directed against the anti-war movement, which is a really weird thing. I just want to explain that to my daughter. She just didn't get it that you know you could be the enemy because you don't want people to die in a global fucking conflagration. That that's the wrong position to take in this. Um, I mean, we know that the true enablers of, of, of Russian capitalism and Russian oligarchs, if you want to use that, are the fucking city of London, are the Tory party. Um, and yet it's been the, the left, if you like, and a handful of, of fairly weak and lack, lacking backbone Labour MPs have been accused of being kind of Putin's apologists. They even attacked the RMT, the Rail Maritime Union, for having a strike on the tubes yesterday. They said they were Putin's underground apologists in London, which is fucking shocking propaganda. But the propaganda is intensified, isn't it, Stuart? I come to you first. I mean, Roger Gale, Tory MP, said today and called for every Russian in Britain to be sent home. I mean, that's the level, that's, that's fucking where we're at here. Stuart, over to you. Uh, yeah, I just think before, again, sorry to go ahead and get back on what was said before about the EU. This is nothing fucking new. 20, uh, 2013 agreement, they actually said to Ukraine then, the new partner would be bound to various NATO military and security policy. They've always wanted this. If I'm in, sitting in Moscow, I'm thinking the EU and the NATO want regime change here. So I'm going to go ahead and do something about this. So again, Putin's not nuts. 
all right, he might be putting on the Nixon madman policy, but there's a certain rationale for what he's trying to do. Uh, in terms of the propaganda here, it is getting to ridiculous levels. Um, I've had various debates with the uh, vaguely Trotskyist people in my own home here, uh, and they all become plucky little fucking patriots at the first beat of a war drum. And the same thing happens to the Social Democrats as well. Uh, it's The banning of RT is ridiculous. It's a very flawed channel, but it's the only medium I have seen here, apart from the Morning Star, which is given both sides of the argument. People in RT will go ahead and say why we shouldn't be doing this or why Russia shouldn't be doing this. But it gives an argument which they don't want to hear, so therefore it is suppressed. Um, uh, the attacks on Abramovich. I don't like Abramovich. I hate Chelsea, but the attacks on him uh, have been somewhat odd. There are more important things to look into than you know, does a Russian own fucking Chelsea. Uh, and it's not just here. You see, in Munich today, somebody asked, I think the mayor, who's also a social fucking Democrat, he demanded that the head guy, the head conductor of the Munich Philharmonic Orchestra, denounce the invasion. The guy didn't respond in time, so he was sacked. All right, we're getting to levels of intimidation and aggression here towards anybody, not just people. It's not, these are not people who are supporting Putin. These are people who want to have a certain element of nuance in the argument. Get away with the simplistic binaries. This is not heroes and villains, good v. evil. There are good people on both sides. There are some very bad people on both sides. But it has become impossible to have a nuanced conversation about this. And that is what the people in charge wants because it is divisive. Right, it puts us all against each other and they can get on with various bits of crap like the EU put through last night. As in, this is a great distraction. It certainly, as John said, it certainly suits fucking Boris Johnson right now. All right, because no one's talking about him breaking the rules over the last couple of years. And he's got the chance to be the bad, fat Churchill impersonator. Churchill was pretty fat himself, though. Uh, so that suits the bastard there. Uh, and we will all suffer on the back of this. Last thing before I end this particular rant, in terms of sanctions, there have been sanctions on the working class since 2010. It's been called fucking austerity. Let's not forget that. Right, I'm done. Sorry. Well done, Stuart. Thanks for that. Thanks for that reminder too. Um, John, the propaganda is, I mean, every time I look on Twitter, I mean, people losing their shits on social media is quite obvious. I mean, the Leinster rugby dad phenomenon, these kind of fat fucking 15-year-old, 50-year-old sitting in their fucking armchairs in in fucking in, in, in Kildare, um, you know, you'd think they were actually on their way to fight in, in the Ukraine um, and, and calling for calling for no fly zones, calling for almost World War Three. Um, but that's a product of propaganda, isn't it? People who didn't know where fucking Ukraine was uh, not a week ago are suddenly calling for, you know, no fly zones and, you know, operating as uh, these armchair generals. I mean, Basically, liberalism is a gateway drug to fascism. And I think we're beginning to see that now very, very clearly for those of us who have eyes to see. I mean, I do think, again, reflecting on my own profession in the academy, it's our job in the universities to open up spaces to have these debates. And, you know, I'm offering a view. We're offering a views of, of where we're coming from, anti-imperialism and so on. But we, we cannot stand idly by and say nothing because we're, if we say nothing or are being cowed down by, you know, being cancelled or shouted down, we're colluding in what is, you know, as you sensed or, or as you intimated, Stefan, I mean, I have never been more frightened. I mean, fucking my area for 40 years has been the planetary collapse. That's still my big shtick. It's, you know, that's a bigger issue to be concerned about. 
But I am really, really concerned, as Derrigan, you know, mentioned, some fuck up, some middle level, you know, misunderstanding with a Ukrainian or a Russian, you know, lieutenant fucking really, or a Polish. I'm really worried about what's going to happen in Poland in terms of some fucking trigger happy fucking anti-Russian Polish, you know, middle level, you know, operative will kick off things that I've never been more frightened and more ashamed, more ashamed to be European. You know, here we are, you know, pretending we're defending democracy. And what's been exposed here is, you know, the imperialism and selective memory of what we've done. We, you know, not not in our name, you know, in, in terms of those of us who don't agree with our governments that supposedly represent the EU and so on. And if nothing else, I mean, it's a phrase that, that stuck me, Stefan, that you said years ago, the European Union is like Frankenstein, but it's got lovely eyes. So <laughs> Somehow, you know, oh, has it got lovely eyes that so, you know, uh, uh, forgives all its 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 constitutional neoliberalism, its constitutional locking in of this economic warfare that, uh, you know, that Stuart had mentioned, you know, now that NATO has been revealed as nothing more than, you know, a fig leaf. For you know American expansionism, the fact that you know again, we're none of us here are apologists for Putin, but he does have legitimate concerns. There are issues around the you know the the, the, the expansion of of NATO. So for me, I would like to think that many of us in the academy, particularly those of us who've been fucked over for decades by the UK system, that you know it, it's go big or go home. We should be opening up our lecture theatres and discuss these issues to let people know that there is an alternative analysis that they're being portrayed here on the BBC, ITV and so on. And that's what's going on. I mean, students I know that are usually on the left are now suddenly fucking we're going to fight. It's like the international brigades. I cannot believe I cannot believe that we have now reached a level that the same equivalence has been used of those anti-fascists who went to fight, you know, against Franco and now been, you know, at, at the same level as Liz Truss, given legitimacy to those fighting against Russia. We should, we should, uh, yeah, we should ban the fucking two words Liz and Truss from any fucking future conversations, make her a shibboleth of, of uh, politics. Duran, over to you for just your briefly, your points on the, on the propaganda taken and why, and how dangerous that is for, 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 for democracy, in fact, and for public debate on, on such important issues. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll start that with a, one very quick sort of apocrypha. Uh, Milan's uh, Bicocco University has just cancelled uh, a course in Dostoevsky because he's Russian. I mean, that's the level we're operating at here, where it, it's it, you know, it's it, it's almost beyond a joke. You want to laugh at it and, and, and mock it, but it's it's frightening the level of of disinformation and propaganda that's being spoon fed. And if you speak out and say anything different. Uh, you're, you're the enemy. I've been following what's been happening with the Labour Party there and over there in, in Britain. Um, up here in, in Denmark, uh, there's a couple of old um, ex-communists who are in the, the Green Alliance here have been publishing some things saying, hey, there's two sides to this. There's a bit of a history and context, much as we're doing tonight. Being attacked by their own party spokespeople in Twitter and in the media um, for daring to say that, there, that there's something else other than Ukraine good, Russia bad. And this is yeah, this is a NATO country that the US actually wants to bring bring troops in here. And the, the same left party leadership has actually scuppered a protest against that organized by their own membership. Um, I, I don't think it's just 
like this this vote last last night in the European Parliament. It's not the same old though. It's like it's a it's a bit new as well. And with what, what happened in Germany uh, the other day, this is a, a an epochal kind of shift. And Joseph Borrell was crowing about the taboos that have been broken by this decision to to send weapons on behalf of the EU. Not, member states, but of the, of the EU. So the idea that the EU can be an armed bloc isn't just something they want, it's something they have now. And you can't resolve from that so very easily, especially when so many um, across the, the bloc, including le- or the left, have given into this pressure and this propaganda, and, and they're not, they are not they don't have the spine to, to stand out above it. And the disinformation thing, just on this, it's, a, it's an element of where the fear comes from. Uh, Zelensky is very keen for a for no-fly zone over Ukraine. He keeps calling for it and pushing it. And he knows what the consequences are. And Burrell lets slip, oh, we're going to send all kinds of things. This, 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 anti-rockets and maybe even jets. And then quickly, Poland, Bulgaria and Slovakia sort of began to, oh, no, no jets, no jets, no jets. Um, But Zelensky was saying, oh, no, there's jets. We're going to get jets from Poland and they're going to be in Poland and we'll fire them over and bomb Russians because we don't have any airstrips of our own. The Russians have heard that. Now, even if there's no jets, the the disinformation... (laughs) cycle is feeding itself and can escalate separate to the facts like so that there is this there's, there's yeah, the churn the, of the propaganda that, and then that, there's that mid, what that, happens that mid-level mistake you refer to means that at some point russia might bomb a polish fucking airstrip where they're yeah, thinking thinking there's there's some there's some ukrainian pilots there ready to come and, and bomb some russian tanks yeah we don't know who's going to make that slip first if anyone but this whole process is making that much more frightening and and the, the germany thing is is this is big this is this isn't just doubling their budget this is Germany is now a military aggressive forward operating power, <laughs> actively going above the NATO recommended two percent. They Germany is exporting weapons already, but now those weapons are allowed to go to to, to conflict zones. Hey, they're, they're now being uh, recommended, and there's actually a German weapons company is now applying for because the, the, the EU has to register um you know, the, the sustainable financing bullshit that they they carry on with. They want to register weapons. Their weapons as being sustainable because they contribute to social stability in Europe. So, green missiles, comrades. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know what to fucking say about that. I'll have to. I'll have an old new podcast on what green missiles mean and sustainable. War is peace. Sustain- yeah. yeah, sustainable militarism. That's uh, that's the next thing. I suppose that I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the European Less Remain and Reform Plan now, lads. After fucking that vote last night or the resolution in the EU. Look, last question because we we've we've spent time. Um, thanks for your contributions um, I'm always warned not to let podcasts go on too long because people get bored of listening to us and they turn off we don't want that because we're very interested in people um, I suppose the last question is and I know it's hard for us to even say anything about it what's the end game here and as Stuart said well, what's, the, what's the exit ramp from this war because no one wants to see this continue I want to say that again to anyone listen no, no one well not unless you're a fucking psychopath or a sociopath no one wants to see this war continue. No one wants to see more civilian casualties in Ukraine. No one wants to see more refugees flooding into other parts of Eastern Europe. No one wants to see the continued war in the, in the Donbass region of Eastern Ukraine. We want to see Russian troops out of fucking Ukraine. We want to see a resolution. We want to see negotiations. Is that going to happen at any point? What do you reckon? I'll go to you, um, you Stuart, first, mate. And briefly, just a minute each on this, lads, because I don't want to go on too long. Just give me your, give me your thoughts briefly. Cheers. It's so hard to predict. I mean, the last the last 10 years have been beyond prediction. I think whenever you believe you're fighting evil, you are prepared to do almost anything to destroy that evil. And if we allow ourselves to believe that Putin represents an evil, which is a threat to us all, then fuck knows where this will take us. This is very worrying. 
I think we have to get that out of the head. We need someone to understand and recognize in the West that we need to go ahead and create peace with these guys. Listen to their concerns, accept a neutral Ukraine and come to some kind of exit ramp, which will allow honor to be actually met on both sides, not to go ahead and humiliate Putin and to let Putin know we don't want to get rid of him. We can do business together. There are other common enemies like the coming threat to the environment. All right. And also, to a certain extent, Islamist fundamentalism, which can be an enemy as well. Uh, and also, if the Americans were smart, they would talk about China as a potential enemy of Russia as well. It's a real achievement of American foreign policy and Western foreign policy to drive Russia and China so close together as this. So will that happen? I don't fucking know. I think at some point Putin might be under threat internally, and that is the immediate hope. What happens after that? I don't know, because the West doesn't seem to realize the second political force in Russia is the Communist Party. And I'm not sure they want the Communist Party of Russia back in charge again. <laughs> Thanks for that, uh, Stuart. John, over to you, mate. Love, briefly, please. What's what's the is there an exit ramp from this? I mean, the reality is, you know, that um, a bad peace is better than a good war. Let's let's be honest about that. That's what we have here in Northern Ireland. And I would much rather a capitulation by Ukraine, which saves millions of people's lives than uh, fighting on in some sort of, you know, Afghanistan, Vietnam type um, conflict. And for me, you know, I, I, I constantly at, at these times, like Derogan, you know, reaching back into history and um, you know, it sounds facetious, but it isn't is that we have to recognize that class is more important than nationality. You know, you know, for me, the, the Scottish socialist John McClain always comes back to me at these points. You know, betray your country, not your class. Don't go to war, my friend. You know, and he was arguing against this, the, you know, the First World War at that point. And that's what we need to keep consistently uh, a focus on. Oligarchs exist in the fucking West, you know, as, as you know, Stuart pointed out. That somehow oligarchs has Russian automatically in front of their name as absolute bollocks that we are now in a similar situation as our grandparents perhaps were in the First World War. Um, we need to stand up and be proud and yeah, be consistent in, in calling out imperialism. I am here speaking on the podcast and wherever little you know, you know, influence I have. I want no one to die. I want no one to die in the Donbass or Kiev or Kharkov, or, or these other countries that suddenly, Odessa, suddenly people are becoming aware of, because they're my people. They're ordinary people. They're decent people. They're my mother. They're, you know, my brother. They're decent working class people. We want to protect them all. But against the fucking machinations of the BBC, back in GB News, all that crap we're getting, even RT. And I always watch RT, comrades. Because in between RT and BBC, somehow lies the truth. And I, I, I think, Stefan, we need another conversation as this conflict progresses. Because if nothing else, we need to support each other, to have the courage of our convictions, that while many of us listening to this podcast may not know the full details, your analysis is as important as the facts on the ground. You know, your at a default position against imperialism, 
you know, your default position against, you know, this class position that we're being portrayed, that somehow if you are anti-NATO, you're somehow pro-Putin. That now is our time, you know, for me, coming out of, the, of, of COVID, where I think labor is stronger in some ways, but doesn't recognize how strong it is. Now is our time to portray ever more strongly an anti-imperialist position. And now is our opportunity. And I wish fervently for no more deaths in the Ukraine, for Russia to withdraw its forces. But as you know, Stuart and I think Derrigan and all, all us accept, the ultimate landing ramp for this is a demilitarized, denazified, and denuclearized Ukraine. That is the only solution I can see ahead of us. Thanks for that, John. Thanks for those words. Duro, and last, last word to you before uh, I finish off. There's what we want. There's what we don't want. And there's what might happen. First of all, I think one of the most important, the two most important forces uh, in determining the outcome of this are the Ukrainian people, the army included, and also to a very great extent, the Russian ones, um, the, the anti-war protests, but also then the military and whoever else, um, the oligarchs and people, people who get sick of Putin. I don't think the communists are coming back because they'll be They'll be, they'll be circumvented. They're, they're not that popular. They're, they're a second, but they're a long way down. Um, in terms of what I think is a feasible or likely exit ramp for this, I find it very difficult to see Donbass remaining in Ukraine as it has been historically. The Minsk uh, agreements, and particularly Minsk II, uh, which neither side was implemented or both were breaching, allowed for elections there, a degree of autonomy, and a lot of the disagreement was over sequencing. Do the Russian troops leave first and hand back control of the border to Ukrainians? Do they have the election first, etc.? And some form of, if, you, if it's not Minsk, because Belarus is now uh, an enemy too, some form of Minsk three, but in a different in a different city, which enacts this autonomy, these elections, some degree of relationship with Russia. That's 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 part of it. I, I don't see Russia winning this militarily. Or if the, in the in the short term they might, but in the long term it'll, it it will be ugly. I think they're going to be uh, they're already reaching a point of you know we, we, we need to sort of shock and awe a bit more and see if we can we can break through. It's it's not going as fast as they wanted it to. They need to get some strategic wins around Crimea, connecting that to Donbass through Mariupol, where the Azov Battalion is. They, they can then say that they've it's a lot more places too, but that's the center of it. They can then say that they've denazified the, the Ukraine to a considerable amount. Um, and try and save face in this sort of uh, respect, and then the de-escalation negotiations about how this acts. The, the vote last night made Ukraine an accession member, accession country for the EU. It's on the waiting list, and they're trying to fast track it. That makes it very difficult to to make it a neutral country without going backwards from that. And the the attack also means it's very difficult for them to withdraw their their wish to join NATO. But the EU. Um, accession thing, which probably will never complete because they just are so far from meeting the criteria, could be a kind of a all right, maybe you're not NATO, but you're this, and like that's half, the neutrality. Like a halfway house, yeah, like a halfway half, house kind of thing yeah. with something for Donbass and and Crimea, but it's it's going to have to be a compromise from both sides, and, and a sort of a denazification and neutral Ukraine. That's kind of the Russian line. Uh, Moscow is going to have to give uh, a lot more, I think, once they've they've had to withdraw because they've made a mess of this, in my opinion. Yeah, um, they have. They fucked up yeah. massively. Um, first, first fuck up was invading, but yeah, they invaded badly. That's what too. I meant. They've they've really yeah. fucked up. And they've miscalculated, and we hope that we hope that that vision you've outlined there, that kind of is one that we see happening. Well, if, if it doesn't, the, the other one is unthinkable and uh, unimaginable. Yeah. To be honest with you, so yeah. let's hope. Lot, lads, thanks very much for your input tonight. I really appreciate it. I know it was last minute, and I just contacted you all and you said you'd come on and help us. 
talk through some of these really serious issues, particularly when outside on social media, on mainstream media, it's just it's you know it's very hard for people to understand what's going on in, in the fog of war and in that levels of propaganda we're seeing. Um, and hopefully, to those of you listening, we provide a little bit of a concrete analysis of a concrete situation. That's certainly been the attempt here. Um, I want to finish with a quote, um, if you don't mind. I don't normally do this, but I was reading this the other day, trying to make sense of it all myself. And it's from the Junior's pamphlet by Rosa Luxemburg, which she wrote after the First World War. Uh, it's a bit of a long quote, so bear with me. The world is a turning point. For the first time, the ravening beasts set loose upon all quarters of the globe by capitalist Europe have broken into Europe itself. A cry of horror went through the world when Belgium, that precious jewel of European civilization, and when the most august cultural monuments of northern France fell into shards under the impact of the blind forces of destruction. This same civilized world looked on passively as the same imperialism ordained the cruel destruction of the Herero tribesmen and filled the sands of the Kalahari with the mad shrieks and death rattles of men dying of thirst. The civilized world looked on as 40,000 men on the Putumaya River in Colombia were tortured to death by a band of European captains of industry, as in Tripoli where fire and sword bowed the Arabs beneath the yoke of capitalism destroyed their culture and habitations. Only today has this civilized world become aware that the bite of the imperialist beast brings death, that its very breath is infamy. Only now has the civilized world recognized this, after the beast's ripping talons have clawed its own mother's lap, the bourgeois civilization of Europe itself. Every people recognizes the infamy only in the national uniform of the enemy, as though war itself were not the atrocity of atrocities. Lads, Goromaygi, thanks very much. Slangle foil. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Upper workers and slang of foil. <laughs>